Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, I'm good. Uh, it's nice to be back after a week off mm. um, and um, it, we kind of discussed just before we went on air, not much has happened. No, it's but, but uh, I mean last week we had to take it off because of inclement weather on your end because mm-hmm. in the brief interim that I was able to arrive in the UK and return to the US, uh, the heavens opened again and the entirety of England was coated in a fine, a fine level of powder. Uh, yeah. Not cocaine, but... Well, no, yeah. I mean, I think if there'd have been coke, we probably wouldn't have stopped recording. <laughs> yeah, we would have knocked out the next hundred episodes. <laughs> yeah, just in a weekend. And they would have been super annoying to listen to, <laughs> but yeah, no, we're 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 kind of uh, we're back and and warmer, which is mm. nice. Yeah, uh, breaking off a fresh hundo, as uh, Scott Ockerman says on Comedy Bang Bang every time <laughs> they go do the first episode after a, a milestone, which we did mention at all last week until uh, after the episode had been recorded that this uh, that was our two hundredth episode and. Mm. Uh, or at least canonically, like there's lots of minisodes and stuff, which mean they're on like 216 or whatever. But in terms of uh, proper main episodes, not episodes where we check in with what's happening with community for the third time, uh, 200 full episodes. Uh, and I'm, I feel pretty proud of that achievement, I have to say. Mm, 200 episodes of which 25% of them are about community. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that it, it seems like that's a big number. Mm. Um, and... I kind of it doesn't really feel like we've done 200 episodes and if you ask me to like kind of name them all every mm-hmm. time I think about older episodes I think like the first five we did the rest are a blur and I can remember what last week's was about yeah I'm pretty sure we did about 18 on Star Wars mm. and then you know here we are but yeah like it feels a nice way I, I really enjoyed last week's one that was a good uh, sorry the last one the the one with Emily on mm. um that seemed to be a very nice way to market because that was super fun to record yeah, and we had had a discussion uh, in the pub when uh, when I was over about how we wanted to mark the 200th, and I I, I was in favour of us just being like, eh, let's just do an episode. <laughs> let's not. Uh, we, we did like for our 100th episode, we did the and ask ask me anything, which was like really fun, uh, and I would like to do that again. But I kind of think it's nice when you're in the gro- in the groove of doing episodes around a theme to mm-hmm. to you know just keep on it, and and it was uh, it was a really fun episode it was great talking to emily about uh crazy ex-girlfriend and uh yeah just kind of like getting on with the thing mm, just play it cool don't mm-hmm. mention it yeah you know like we're above that kind of thing exactly until like two weeks later then we'll go on about it for like three yeah. minutes yeah exactly uh so we'll go on to the news this week uh probably one of the big news stories that came up over the last week or so was that ava duvernay has been added to the dc Universe. She's going to be joining it, working, uh, directing the movie New Gods, which is an adaptation of the Jack Kirby opus from the 70s, which was this huge mammoth uh, kind of comic space opera that uh, took um, characters that he had kind of wanted to do in 
the Marvel universe, but he had parted ways with Marvel. And like the first thing he did with DC was like, okay, I'm going to introduce all of these new cosmic villains and kind of create this massive, intense, in- intricate uh, mythology to kind of surround them. Uh, we kind of got a glimpse of that in Justice League with the character of Steppenwolf, the incredibly memorable villain from that movie who everyone of course will be excited to see in the new one but uh, it, it it's a, a weird thing that they would do that because like dc have i think been and, and one brothers have been fairly chastened mm-hmm. by how their approach to cinematic universe building has gone and instead of kind of taking a step back and saying okay it was going to be a rebuilding year or whatever. We're going to try something new uh, or something small to kind of like try and win people back. They have gone for the biggest swing possible by adapting uh, one of the most psychedelic and strange works of mainstream comics that's ever happened. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because uh, for several reasons, one of which is I was certain that she was going to be uh, kind of kept in the Disney stable, mm. possibly put in charge of one of the new Star Wars movies that's coming up in the future. And I wonder whether or not kind of defecting to the other side is a filmmaker who has got options, can do whatever they want, trying to do as many things as they want. Mm-hmm. Or I really hope this isn't the case, that the perhaps underperformance of A Wrinkle in Time has kind of and critically and commercially i would say the fact that it hasn't perhaps met expectations whether or not that has convinced her to probably like or or allowed her to try a kind of her hand somewhere else because that is a film that everyone had high hopes for that critically has kind of had been mixed reviews and is kind of um doing okay at the box office is coming up to 90 million worldwide Mm -hmm. but i think that's some way short of what they wanted it's probably more the former just because it like making deals and, and things in Hollywood takes a long time. So mm-hmm. I think there may be just a sense that they wanted to announce it in the wake of a wrinkle in time, just because, you know, it's a significant release. You know, we've talked about the fact it's the first movie directed by a woman of color to have a hundred million dollar budget, you know, and it's kind of, it was, it, even if it hasn't kind of like been a, a, a runaway smash in the way that maybe people were hoping, you know, it's still kind of a significant movie and they kind of wanted to ride uh, on the back of the, what, you know, the anticipated goodwill of that. But, you know, it's not like she started taking like frantic phone calls and just lined up a deal in a weekend mm-hmm. to kind of like land, you know, this is clearly something that she's been working on for a long time. So I think it is more a case of her, you know, taking a chance at something big and adventurous uh, and something that I think it'll be interesting to see how, you know, how that turns out. Because like I say, it's a, it's a kind of a crazy thing to attempt to kind of, even if you're doing it piecemeal and they're going to do it over like multiple movies, it's still kind of a big epic, you know, cosmic space opera and the visual style of uh, a wrinkle in time and the kind of the themes of that seem like a, an interesting first step in that direction for her. So uh, it will be very cool. Assuming that, you know, it happens because movies get announced all the time and sometimes don't, come to fruition like uh, people may remember that sort of two or three years ago she was in negotiations to do black panther and that obviously uh, ended up going to ryan coogler mm, yeah but it's at this point dceu have got nothing to lose mm. um because 
you know, they're trying out the, the, the kind of so-called popular big people, um, the Batmans, the Supermans, the Wonder Womans for the Justice League films, and people just aren't going for it. No mm. one seems to be that excited by the prospect of four Joker movies. <laughs> no one seems to be that excited by a standalone Batman movie. Mm. So it kind of like a smart move for the DC uh, EU to just say, right, fuck it, here's a bunch of weird stuff that no one's heard of. Yeah, and you do wonder if maybe their decision to do that is has been shaped by the success of something like Thor Ragnarok, which mm-hmm. visually owes a lot to New Gods, kind of takes place in a similar visual palette. Certainly, it's a kind of a very colourful 70s comic series, so uh, and that kind of like neon brightness that Taika Waititi brought to that certainly gave that movie a distinctive feel and I think is a big part of why it connected with audiences in a way that the previous Thor movies had not, you know, certainly not to the same extent. So you wonder if perhaps that and the success of Guardians of the Galaxy are making Warner Brothers think, well, we're not having much chance with the Earthbound heroes. Maybe Mm. if we go, if we jet off into the far reaches of space and do something that takes place in more in strange new dimensions maybe we'll have uh more luck and uh be able to maybe do something that's fun yeah that's important fun because the dceu movies to this point have not been fun mm, yeah they've been uh, kind of like grim dark yawn fests punctuated yeah. by loud noises with the exception of like the first hour or so of wonder woman which at least had you know jokes yeah yeah, it did have some solid jokes and kind of good old classic revolving door slapstick. Mm, um, fun chemistry, I mean, uh, a lot of stuff. Everyone wasn't just gritting their teeth and yeah. hurling and saying, do you bleed at each mm. other, you know. It was, a, it was a little livelier than that. Mm, yeah. In other news, and uh, kind of moving slightly away from films, but it involves someone who's been in movies and should have been nominated for an Oscar last year and was not, uh, Cynthia Nixon announced that she's running for governor of New York, which uh, is certainly appealing to me because it uh, hits the centre of the Venn diagram of my interests, which is leftist politics and sex in the city. But uh, I just I think it's really fascinating seeing how people have reacted to her candidacy in the wake of Donald Trump. I think there's this idea that, you know, you should never let any celebrities run for office, which is probably a good tack to take. But at the same time, they ignore the fact that like, she is like someone who's been an activist activist for many years and clearly knows a lot about education policy and LGBTQ issues. And uh, I just find it really fascinating to see that dynamic playing out and uh, I am very excited to see how that ends up kind of shaping up over the next six, seven months or so. Yeah, I mean obviously there's been the backlash from the usual assholes, mm. and you know for, for reasons that you know I can't quite work out possibly because she's a woman and secondly a bisexual woman might be have something to do with the, the reason that certain like, like kind of subsects of the internet have decided to uh, lash out. I'm not sure. I'm, I may be uh, uh, leaping too quickly to that conclusion. But, uh, yeah, it's it's weird that American politics is kind of like a cult of personality. Yeah. And everyone seems to think that it's not cool to nominate a reality TV host to be, you know, the, the party's nomination for president. But then 
all of a sudden Oprah's a great idea. Mm. Um, and, you know, you're just making the same mistake but making it a different mistake. But, like, for me, it almost, like, doesn't matter because, uh, you know, you can't really win with a career politician, it seems. If you are if you are qualified for the job, you don't seem to get the job. Mm. Um, or if you're, like, you know, your dad is famous or you're related to another president, then that seems to be all right. You can, you can be in the running there. So, like, going back, you know, probably we have to get to kind of like the first half of the 20th century to we get anyone who's like remotely qualified to be president of America. <laughs> I think in the case of Cynthia Nixon's candidacy, I think one of the things that's quite interesting about it is that it is, you know, an internecine conflict on the, within the democratic party. Cause uh, Mario Cuomo, who's the current governor is a, is a Democrat, but he's kind of seen as something of a, a centrist, someone who, perhaps doesn't really push for progressive causes as much as he could and is uh, blamed pretty much roundly for the failure of the, the subway system in New York. Certainly a lot of the people on Twitter that I follow who live in New York are constantly complaining about it just being an absolute hell to travel around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find it to be very interesting in terms of like, you know, there's lots of these discussions about, you know, do the Democrats need to appeal to white working class voters to win, you know, back power? Do they need to push for the new coalition of kind of like younger people of colour, um, people who care about, you know, social issues more, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's kind of interesting, again, that something in, in New York, which is such a, a democratic state anyway, where there's kind of very little chance they would lose the governorship regardless of who wins. So mm. it's kind of like an actual chance for, the, for a, like a PG dish where they say, okay, what if we have someone like Cynthia Nixon who seems to be running from kind of like a populist standpoint versus someone who's more kind of like, I'm pragmatic and I can get things done, incrementalist kind of thing. Uh, and so where they basically say, one of them's going to win the general election anyway, so let's see if, uh, you know, who makes the better argument. Mm, yeah, I think... I would be up for any... I would vote for anyone from Sex and the City. Mm-hmm. Like, apart from John Corbett, because I don't trust him. Um, <laughs> just There's just something about... It. No, no. Oh, sorry, I'm thinking of the wrong guy. The guy that Carrie dated, who was like a jazz musician. Right, okay. That, yeah, fuck that guy. He, um, I wouldn't vote for him. He was a douchebag. But any, literally anyone else, I'd vote for Berger, even. Even <laughs> though he's kind of really just in a state of arrested development. Mm, I think... I would vote for most of them, except maybe for Carl McLaughlin, because he was just... He's got mummy of, issues. He's got mummy issues. He was just kind of... It, that, it, it was a very good use of him in that show, in that you had him with his kind of, like, boyish charm, but then, yeah, then you do the whole mummy issues thing, and it's like, oh, okay, he's hiding beneath this kind of, like, Dale Cooper kind of uh, shininess, the fact that he's kind of a deeply dysfunctional person. Uh, and that's kind of become his stock in trade since like that. It's a big part of his persona in Portlandia, I think, the fact he looks like a mayor, but he's also kind of deeply strange underneath it all. So mm-hmm. if you were to elect him, even though his Twitter persona is that he's the kind of like the loveliest man alive, you kind of wonder if secretly he's the devil. Also, this is my concern about Sam Neill, <laughs> the, most, the most charming man uh, in the world on Twitter, but also he was Satan. Mm, he's got a lot of animals on his farm on Twitter, and 
you know, there might be a chance that he's ritually sacrificing them mm. um, in some kind of, you know, strange blood pact uh, with someone. Or he could just be making wine. Yeah, I mean, and do you really want to take that risk? Like, if that's no. the coin flip, and it's like, heads, he's just making wine, tails, he will bring about the end times. That's, mm. a, pretty, that's a pretty big risk. Yeah, not one that I'd want to take, but I do trust him. He's got a trustworthy face. Mm, that's everyone's mm. mistake, though. Yeah, yeah. That's how you lose a hand. Shout out to all the piano heads out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that what fans of the piano are called? Piano heads? I'd like to think so. Uh, campesinas. <laughs> Campesinos. Pianodes. Yeah, pianodes. I like yeah. pianodes. Yeah, shout out to all the pianodes out there. So... Yeah. Our episode this week, uh, this is a, a, something that we've been talking about doing for uh, a while and couldn't quite find the right way to frame it. And then, as always, the answer came through Twitter, uh, specifically mm-hmm. through uh, Zoe Kazan, the star of, amongst other things, The Big Sick, one of our top ten films of last year, where she tweeted, The myth of the movie star is bad for actors. And that kind of crystallised what we wanted to talk about for a while, which is the notion of movie stars what does movie stardom mean at this point in the year 2018 is it something that exists anymore uh, anymore is it something that ever truly existed was it all hollywood marketing uh, and this is kind of a discussion that's been revived recently by the performance of the movie red sparrow which is mm-hmm. uh, a movie starring jennifer lawrence which came out a couple of weeks ago not that anyone really noticed because uh, it didn't do Great, although actually, compare when people talk about it failing, they talk about how it didn't do very well in its opening weekend, and it's actually done not bad in the weeks since then, but we'll, we'll kind of get into that. But there's this, this notion that Jennifer Lawrence, you know, is a huge movie star. She should be able to open any movie, and it will, you know, it'll bring in tons and tons of money because she's a movie star, because she's very famous, because she's one of the most recognisable actresses in the world. And people saying the fact that movies like Red Sparrow and Mother don't do very well proves that she that that the uh pull of movie stars has kind of faded is the idea of a movie star as someone who can open any kind of movie and it will make huge amounts of money just because people want to see them is that something that ever truly existed yeah well i think it's fair to say in terms of giving a little bit of historical context to this that it probably did exist in the yeah. days where we had a studio system, mm. in the te- in the sense where we had uh, like six six big studios who uh, owned, uh, it was a vertically integrated system. So the the studios owned uh, the means of production. They owned the people who uh, worked on the things. They owned uh, the exhibition. So they owned the cinemas that they were thing um, to to kind of show things in. So it all went through one company at the end of the day and they owned stars and owned their contracts and the star system was kind of born out of the idea that studios would control every element of a star's personality and life and output to the point where they would change their name um, and they would come up with, you know, a look for them or an idea for them and everything that actor did would fit snugly in that box because it was easily marketable. Yeah, and then on the kind of the seedier side of things, they would cover up scandals for them. That's kind of the whole uh, thing, like the whole Hail Caesar thing of having fixers who would work in studios and would go around and pay people off to kind of hide scandals, rough people up, allegedly 
kill people. Um, like if you buy into the real kind of like Hollywood Babylon end of the situation. Movie stars were definitely like a real part of component of this system. And then after Olivia de Havilland sued them in the 1940s, sued, um, I think Warner Brothers, one of the major studios, because um, the way in which that they had done, the way that in which they had interpreted contracts was like, say you sign a contract with a studio for five years. The studio would say that that five years only encompasses days that you work. So, mm. and because a lot of being an actor is not working because you're not constantly going from project to project, that meant that like a five-year contract could actually extend as long as the studio wanted because you were also dependent on them giving you work. So if, like in the case of someone like Betty Davis, who also sued the studio system, if they, you know, started being in movies that underperformed or they got into a argument with the studio head, if there was a change of management at the studio, then they could just refuse to give them work, but then they wouldn't be able to get work anywhere else because they were under contract to the studio. And Olivia de Havilland sued them uh, and basically made it so that no five years means five years from this date to that date and that kind of like freed people up so movies movie stars as like an actual factual thing do exist in the sense that you know there was this whole system designed to create people's personas and to kind of package them into certain kinds of movies and or, or you know they would take someone like a like a clint eastwood who was part of the the, the probably the last generation really of the star system where you would bring someone in and you would train them up in acting lessons and dance lessons and singing and things like that. And then they try you in a bunch of stuff to find something that worked. Uh, and then once they found something that worked, then it's like, okay, you do this thing until you drop dead. <laughs> you make this one kind of movie uh, and then, yeah, and we'll make money. Everyone makes money. Everyone's happy. But since then, the term movie star has become this much more ill-defined thing where it encompasses the idea of, someone who is like a box office draw, you know, like people will go and watch a movie just because they're in it. Also people who aren't box office draws, but are just really famous. Mm -hmm. Um, so someone like prior to Pirates of the Caribbean, you would count someone like Johnny Depp as that mm -hmm. because he was someone that everyone knew, but he was almost never in movies that made any money. Uh, and then there's the other like X factor of, you know, someone having like star quality of charisma of just having the idea that as soon as they appeared on the screen, they were like arresting and you were like, mm. Oh wow. This person has it, you know, the indefinable it factor. Mm. I think after the collapse of the studio system and the, I would say pre perhaps slight disintegration of the star system, you then kind of looked at actors in two broad terms. One is an actor and the other is a movie mm -hmm. star. The difference between them is that actors would take on a variety of roles. So normally, you know, character actors. So, you know people like your, your your Martin Balsams or your Burgess Merediths, um, people like that who played a variety of different roles. And then your movie stars would be people who were essentially the same in every film that they did. They mm. might occasionally stray from that, but they essentially represent something just by being them. So in the olden days of this, when I'm kind of talking about the kind of post-studio system area, someone like Henry Fonda 
who would always be, you know, he would kind of stand up for some kind of like, you know, all American goodness. And then he'll play against it when, you know, he's in Once Upon a Time in America or something. But if you look at the modern era, there's someone like Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford in most films he's in. He's he's heroic. He's, you know, kind of like a, an ordinary guy who's just in extreme situations who deals with it. Pretty much every film he's made... Um, apart from maybe like what lies beneath and I don't know, maybe K-19, the Widowmaker, mm. he fits into that mold and he does one thing and he, he does it really well. And that's what's appealing about him. Tom Cruise might also fit into that. He has perhaps slightly more range than, 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 uh, than uh, Harrison Ford, but they, they are kind of like, when I think about movie stars, in the kind of 21st century era, these guys appear to be like the dying icons of that. Tom Hanks as well. Tom Hanks reminds me of kind of James Stewart, who mm. he he can equally flip between drama and comedy, like effortless, effortlessly, but he has that same appeal that people will go and see him do something serious and people will go and see him doing something lighthearted. And that is what I think of now when I think of the star system. I think of... It divided into character actors and and stars, but I, in the the age of franchise filmmaking, where the thing drawing people to the box office isn't the people in it, it's what it is. You're mm. going to see a superhero movie or a franchise movie or a Star Wars movie, like you wouldn't say Daisy Ridley can open a movie because the last two um, Star Wars movies did you know incredible business. But, you know, she's the lead of those movies. People are going to see those movies because they're Star Wars. Yeah, and also, like, Robert Downey Jr., you would say he is a movie star because he's in lot, because he has a lot of the things that you think of. You know, he's very charismatic. He has a persona that he applies to a lot of the movies that he's in, but also a lot of the movies he's in. He's playing Tony Stark at this point. Like, mm-hmm. the last time he wasn't Tony Stark was, what, The Judge? That movie he did in 2014 with Robert De Niro. No, uh, Robert Duvall, sorry. Mm -hmm. And before then, Due Date with Zach Galifianakis, where he was also... But that was like him trying to be a... And, you know, with his newfound kind of obvious huge success from from the Iron Man movies, like uh, trying to apply the what is the quintessential kind of Robert Downey Jr. persona to a kind of a a broad R-rated comedy and kind of succeeding. Uh, Yeah, so but but at this point, he's played Tony Stark more than, you know, he's played any other character, except maybe the character he was on Ali McBeal. But even then, Hours Wives is probably pretty close at this point. Um, There's that big question mark about, you know, when he eventually leaves that franchise which is probably going to be sooner rather than later because, you know, people are going to start, their contracts are going to start ending and they're going to want to kind of shove out the old guard to make room for the new people. Will people go and watch movies he's in anymore? Because, you know, he won't be playing that character and that's kind of a, a big question. And he won't care because he's he's richer than, than anyone at this point. Like, he makes huge amount of money from, from those movies. But it is a question to consider where just because these people are in successful movies... And they're known all over the world. Does that mean that they are like movie stars in the traditional sense? You know, could they open a movie that's separated from their, their you know, these these established franchises? And that's also kind of the thing with the Jennifer Lawrence stuff, where she 
became iconic, I would say, for playing Katniss in the Hunger Games movies and to a lesser extent playing Mystique in the X-Men movies. But, you know, a lot of the stuff she's done outside of then, outside of those movies, haven't really kind of taken off in any major way. Hmm. Yeah. It's about, and the thing is with Jennifer Lawrence as well is that she hasn't been the star of everything she's done since then. No. So she slipped back into being a supporting player whilst her part was beefed up, I guess, in the X-Men movies. And also she's done like a wide variety of things. Um, she hasn't just gone for those kind of tentpole star films, which is something that probably she could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, But then she'll also do something like Mother that came out yes. like last year, which is not something that, you know... I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but I understand uh, it's slightly more challenging than The Hunger Games. Yeah, I think what people kind of miss when they talk about the idea, like that this is what this book, there was a lot of hand-wringing around the release of Red Sparrow and also around Mother, but to a lesser extent, because like Mother is such a wildly uncom- uh, uncommercial movie that like I don't think anyone watching it was like, oh, this is going to make $50 million domestic or whatever. You know, there was never that sense that it was going to be a big hit. But, like, Red Sparrow, which is kind of in a more commercial vein, there was that sense of, like, well, if, you know, she can't make this movie a hit, then, you know, do movie stars have any kind of relevance anymore? And you kind of look at it and you think, well, it's a long, R-rated, slow spy movie, which, you know, isn't exactly a popular genre. It's like... Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy didn't make $600 million. You know, it's mm. not like that. You wouldn't look at that on paper and say, oh, yeah, this is a kind of a bona fide hit. Uh, and you could say, in fact, that something like Mother, which earned $17 million, or uh, Joy, which earned $56 million, you could say that those movies actually prove that she does have the requisite quality of a movie star, or at least of being a draw, because, like, those movies, I think, made a lot more because she was in them than they would have if she wasn't. Like, mm-hmm. you being a draw doesn't necessarily mean that you make every movie you're in a hit. It does mean that, like, people will check it out. Even if it's, like, a bizarre fever dream from Darren Aronofsky. Mm. And do, do you think that there's a certain amount of failure-proofing to someone like Jennifer Lawrence, or do you think that she doesn't have enough hits in the bank to keep doing films that don't make money? I think there is... I mean, I think she faces problems for being a woman in Hollywood. I think that women in general get fewer chances. Like, even someone like Julia Roberts, who was probably one of the biggest movie stars in the world for a good 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like, once she kind of hit her 40s, she wasn't really in movies that much anymore. I mean, she was in Wonder last year, which was kind of a big hit, but, like, the amount of movies she's in dried up, like, pretty noticeably. Um, Like, she did... I think she did cameos in those Gary Marshall holiday movies, you know, New Year's Eve and whatnot, but it wasn't like she wasn't steadily in movie after movie after movie after she was for a while, whereas, like, Tom Hanks has been in movies, uh, pretty much a movie every year, since the 80s and it's never slowed Mm. him down and i think there is just that sense that past uh, you know hollywood there's lots of roles for young actresses in hollywood and there's a lot of roles character actor roles for women in their kind of like 50s and 60s but once someone enters their like late 30s and 40s like it gets a lot harder to find the roles uh i think that success has less to do with it than 
just the the fact that Hollywood is set up so that once studio heads decide that someone is not attractive anymore, either physically or just in the sense of like they're no longer an attractive commodity for them, then their career suddenly becomes a lot more kind of treacherous and difficult. Mm. I tell you who is someone who is a fairly unlikely movie star in the old fashioned sense is uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Mm, yeah, um, when I was trying to think of people who would qualify as like bona fide movie stars in like the sense that we think of the term, he was like the top of my list. Yeah, like so he he's he's a guy who I mean he's he's not a trained actor. He is a, he comes from like a, he's like a third generation uh, wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously relies on having a, like a big personality and like screen presence which he yeah. has um and immense likability and the idea that he is kind of game for anything which mm-hmm. is what you get and that kind of combines to making him like a really likable screen presence who you know given the right chemistry with other actors you know i mean like jumanji is the is the the example of that in the right ensemble with like three other you know obviously stronger actors but who kind of he can hold his own against whilst doing his thing whilst against at the same time playing against his own image which he has always done going right back to uh what's the sequel to get shorty called oh uh, be cool yeah like playing against his image of being in any way kind of like uh macho or laddish or loutish um which people might think of when they think of a wrestler which also mm. kind of John Cena is trying to do right now, um, yeah. um, which is kind of cool. But yeah, he he seems to be a like a like a pretty solidly bankable star at the moment. I mean, Baywatch tanked, but mm. that was less to do with him, I guess, and more to do with the fact that at that point people have started to tire of the nostalgia thing. Yeah, and also there was that sense of like an R-rated. Baywatch comedy had a very limited appeal because, like, Bay- Baywatch wasn't good no. <laughs> to begin with. Like, the, the original show was always kind of like this crappy, cheesy show that was, you know, just kind of cheesecake and beefcake. That was its main appeal, was attracting people running in slow motion. And, mm. like, there's not a lot of material there to kind of build upon. And, it you know, obviously... Uh, Lord and Miller had been very kind of successful with their two Jump Street movies, but that clearly is not a formula that is easily replicate replicable. You know, you can't just put a, uh, jokes into a kind of a tired old uh, franchise or old kind of IP and say, okay, this is a thing. Watch it. Uh, similar, also Chips, the mm-hmm. uh, film version of Chips, which came out. Last year as well, maybe or two years ago. It, uh, uh, which it, was, it was last year, yeah, and and it it sunk without a trace. Yeah, unsurprisingly. Which was, yeah, that was basically the same idea. It's like, hey, let's take this old cheesy TV show that people sort of remember and make it R-rated and add kind of jokes to it. And again, people were like, mm, no, I mean, we like it when it's Channing Tatum and uh, and Jonah Hill, but not really. What Dax Shepard and, Ma- and Michael Pena. Mm-hmm. I think the two were in that one. I know, I know Jack, uh, Dax Shepard also wrote and directed that, so it was all all on his head. But, yeah, like, 
he i think in the in the case of like the rock also what's interesting is his progression as an actor and as a star also is kind of an analogous to the progress of an old school movie star because he was someone who didn't find stardom kind of immediately when he moved to movies obviously he was in the mummy returns briefly as a human and then as an absolutely <laughs> awful uh, cgi abomination mm-hmm. uh but and then you know they gave him a spin-off movie which didn't do that well and then after that there was a lot of him like being in be cool in kind of a small role where he basically was the highlight for the movie for everyone like no one <laughs> enjoyed be cool but they said oh you know Dwayne Dwayne Johnson pretty good uh and then then after that there's a lot of kind of failed action franchises or stuff like uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Faster with him where he's is it Faster yeah I think it was called Faster where he's like a guy who had been shot in the head and left for dead and then went to prison and he breaks out and he's just seeking vengeance which is actually a really cool brass tacks action movie but there was there were there were all these movies that he was in that never really connected but everyone always liked him and it was clear that everyone in hollywood was like trying to make dwayne johnson work like Mm. they were all they were trying him in all these different things and trying to think okay at what point does do we find a formula that works for this guy and then he gets added to the fast and furious franchise as a villain and then suddenly he becomes the guy that supercharges franchises like you add him to that you add him to the journey to the center of the earth sequel you add him to was he in the gi joe sequel maybe he was yeah he was yeah yeah uh, he was just basically all of these movies and not all of them were successful. Like I don't think that GI Joe sequel went anywhere, but there was definitely this sense that, okay, he is someone who like, like you say, you put him in an ensemble and you have people play off of him. And he suddenly is like the, the third kind of heat that really kind of makes these franchises work in a big way. And then now he's entering this new phase of his career where, you know, he's going to be in rampage and he's going to be in, skyscraper where i think he punches a building to death i'm not entirely sure <laughs> yeah. um it, i'm not entirely sure what that i think that there's that movie is basically just like um towering inferno but with the rock uh and so there's that now we're entering that phase of like can he hold a movie on his own which was something that he always struggled in before you know he became uh, a big draw but you mm. know and, and he has been successful in a variety of things he's done action movies he was in that movie central intelligence with kevin hart which uh i don't know if you've seen is really funny it's a really yeah. good movie i saw it in uh, spanish on a bus so <laughs> yeah uh i kind of understood half of it and the jokes didn't carry that well right but that's another one where you can clearly say okay we know what the dwayne johnson persona is so we're going to really kind of play with it and if, if nothing else, he has got a defined outfit at this point, because I think there's someone on Twitter posted, like, screen caps from three different movies, and all of them were him wearing kind of a khaki fatigues, because mm. they were, and they all had him in a jungle. Uh, yeah. So, they, so they, he's definitely found kind of something that works for him. Mm. He's also, um, like, in Moana. Mm. And um, this is something I kind of wanted to talk about, like having this week watched um, La La Land and and An American in Paris, Mm. um, um, the idea that, like, the biggest criticism of La La Land, and I think it's fair, is that Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are not 
the greatest singers and dancers, which is, um, you know, it's, it's not an unkind thing for me to say because they can clearly sing and dance. But mm. what they can't do is sing and dance as well as, like, musical theatre people. Or, yeah. to extend this further and to bring it into our topic for, for this evening, um, in the olden days you had to be able to do all three. <laughs> Yes, you didn't when have you to were, be great at all three, but you needed to be pretty good at all three. Yeah, so there was an idea that, like, we think of Jimmy Cagney as, like, the tough guy from, like, mm. gangster movies from Angel of the Dirty Faces, but the same year he was making kind of, like, big Busby Berkeley musicals. Mm, and he was a, a huge star on Broadway as well. Like, he was travelling from performing on stage to go and shoot his gangster movies and then going back to the stage. Like, there was definitely a sense that he was, uh, you know, he was the archetypal triple threat. Mm. Now, is that is that a hangover from the early days of cinema being the lines being blurred between the stage and the screen? Or is that something that, like, in the studio days where you just had to do that kind of movie because you were told to do it and you were owned by the studio and you just had to fit as many different holes as possible, no matter what kind of square peg you were. Um, or is, is, and is that, or is it just the death of the musical and things like that kind of, um, killed that off and you know, you don't have to be as good at all those things or a jack of all trades as you used to. I think it's at least partly, uh, a way of kind of future proofing yourself against changing tastes mm-hmm. because, like there may be a run of time when musicals are all anyone ever wants to see, and if you can't sing, well, then you're fucked. <laughs> I can't. I cannot wait for those days. Like where it's just wall-to-wall musicals. Yeah, we're getting close. Like next next two years, I reckon we're going to get a lot of people trying to capitalise on the success of The Greatest Showman and La La Land, and not doing very well. But I look forward to the failures. We've well, got um, Mamma um, Mia two this year. Mm. Yeah, haven't we? And then we've got Mary Poppins at Christmas. Oh yeah, Mary Poppins returns. Yeah. Um, so th- th- there's some out there, but you know, we want a new musical golden age. Bring it on! Yeah. I'm, I'm ready. But but like, so there was that sense that, and also you know, or you know, one year we may get like everyone's really into musicals, and next year people really into kind of um, farce. You know, next year people really into kind of hard gangster movies or they're all happening at the same time and it's kind of a case of like okay if you can do all of these things pretty well then you're pretty much set because then you can flip between them and also in the kind of like the way that the studio system worked they trained you up in how to do all of those things and then they would try and find something that worked for you and then sometimes you would get someone like Humphrey Bogart who was not a singer or a dancer he was just like a character actor who became a movie star because he you know had a, a kind of a, a lucky break on a couple of movies that did really well and then he got the Maltese Falcon and then he never looked back mm-hmm. you know there is there were people who just like they found a niche of a thing that they could do better than anyone else and then that became their road to kind of stardom uh, which also lies in, ties into like the the fact that in the, in Bogart's case he was just like an arresting screen palette presence like you can't take your eyes off of him he's got such a uh, a character a, a face just so full of character um, that it'd be impossible not to find him captivating. Mm. If you think about today's crop of actors, who who do you think fits that old school triple threat mold the best? Zac Efron. 
okay. think, yeah. is someone who is a genuine kind of like song and dance man. He obviously, he's in The Greatest Showman, which is, I think is probably the biggest film of his career at this point. Um, mm-hmm. One of the biggest, he obviously became most famous through, uh, through High School Musical. And in between those kind of like peaks commercially, he's tried his hand at, at all sorts of like drama. He's obviously, he had a run of R-rated comedies in the wake of Neighbours. Mm-hmm. where that basically was all he did for a little while and they were never as successful as neighbors but they all did sort of okay like they all hit kind of at the 40 50 million dollar range um but he is someone who is can do kind of like light fizzy comedy well he can do uh drama pretty well i think he's playing jeffrey Dahmer in an upcoming movie which i think will probably be the biggest test of him as a an out and out dramatic performer because i think everything else is more like like the Paperboy, you know, the Lee Daniels movie, which mm-hmm. is so pulpy and bizarre that, you know, he's not giving a comedic performance, but it just ends up being funny because the movie's so weird. Mm. But I think he is someone who fits the traditional idea and there's that sense of, like, in a different age, like, he absolutely would be, like, a Gene Kelly-level star. Mm. Yeah. And, and um, it's it's always... Like, the other, only other people I can think of are people who come from other disciplines. So someone, like, from the same movie, Great Showman, Hugh Jackman, who came from musical theatre, mm. um, but can also, you know, do R-rated Wolverine movies. And, yeah, is has kind of got chops. Um, but then th- people like, uh, like Justin Timberlake would be, a, like, he... Probably he couldn't like lead a movie, I guess. Mm. Um, but he's always very interesting in like smaller parts. Yeah. Um, but I believe he can sing and dance. I've seen evidence. Mm. Yeah, he can uh, foul up a Super Bowl um, <laughs> halftime yeah. show uh, two Hades, times in in a decade. Uh, Haley Steinfeld. Um, mm. Yes, is an interesting one. But yeah, it's 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 normally like these days. It's like oh, that person can sing. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, or, you know, they're, they're so rarely called upon to do everything because, you know, we we don't have that range of genres being made all the time. Yeah, I had that just yesterday when I was, like, going on iTunes, iTunes Music and, like, just browsing at, like, you know, hot songs, that are, the, the Hot 100 or whatever. And one of the songs was by Lola Kirk, who is the... Um, star of the movie Miss Mistress America, the um, no Barnback movie. Oh, who yeah, I, yeah. I didn't realize had a kind of a singing career, but she does have that, and it's a it's a good good song, and she's got a good voice. And there is that kind of sense of oh, like she can do that sort of stuff, and I'm sure she'd be good in a musical because she's like a really fun, captivating performer. And Mistress America is like a really great farce, so obviously she can do comedy. But yeah, again, there isn't that kind of system in place where you think, okay, this person needs to do all of these things. There is just kind of like, yeah, you can do music if you like, but chances are people aren't going to require you to do that all that often. Um, unless it's like, you know, um, Carrie Mulligan in Shame, where she sings like really dull <laughs> version of New York, New York. Do you think that it might just be a case of, you know, we're struggling to think of too many examples of people who would fit into that mould, but it might just be that it's actually just quite hard to be super talented and do all three things really well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that probably is a part of it, but I, I think also 
the you know like the the fact that the market in general is like so fragmented at this point there is that sense that you can get by by just doing one thing really well in a way that wasn't really encouraged in the studio system but i mean specifically for like specifically for like movie stars like character actors have always been allowed to do that Mm -hmm. you know like if you had a fascinating face and you could like do like if you were a Walter Brennan, like you didn't really need to have a huge amount of range. You could just be and, and Walter Walter Brennan was a great actor and I'm sure he tried like a lot of different things. But when you look at it, like the last like twenty years of his career, it's a lot of drunk cowboys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like that's he was good at that and he, you know, he had the face for it, he had the demeanour for it, and you know, that was something he was able to do just kinda like over and over again. And I think that that the freedom to basically be said, okay, you don't need to be like great at everything. You can be good at like that one thing. I think someone like Marlon Brando is a big part of like that because he was someone who was groomed for the old system in that way. He did do musicals. Obviously, he was in Guides and Dolls, which is a a movie I really enjoy, but it's so weird seeing (laughs) him him get in there and sing it and and be in this kind of big artificial space when you're considering like a few years ago he's in you know streetcar named desire Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is so so very different you know he he was someone who basically was you know he he got put into a lot of different roles and tries lots of different things but at a certain point he was just like no i'm not gonna do musicals and things like that i'm gonna be you know an actor in kind of like more artistically fulfilling movies Mm. uh or movies that specifically fit what his particular style did. And then after that, at some point, he stopped caring and, you know, was being fed his lines and just was a real weird eccentric guy. Well, I mean, that's a polite way of putting it. A kind of, like, wildly <laughs> disruptive arsehole um, yes. would probably be the other way. Yeah, that's certainly another way of putting it. But I think, you know, the, the uh, him, James Dean, like all the people who came out of the, the method in the 60s, uh, Marilyn Monroe as well, to an extent, although she, like, obviously, once she just developed a persona, she got kind of pushed into certain kind of roles, but then would push back with things like the misfits. Mm-hmm. You know, that there, there is definitely a sense that people came out of that, um, came out of that school of acting and, you know, weren't content to do the whole, you have to be great at three very difficult things in order to be a movie star. Mm, yeah, yeah. So to pull it back to the Zoe Kazan's, Kazan quote, you know, do we agree with the idea that the myth of the movie star is bad for actors? Because I, I, I do, and I think that, like, it's bad in a number of different ways, the chief of which is that there's that idea that just because someone is kind of famous and well-known, they should be able to open a movie to huge numbers based on their name alone. Mm-hmm. And if they don't do that, then it's put on them. They're, they say, people say they're not a movie star anymore and then they don't get roles. Yeah. So I think that's a problem. And it, 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 in that sense, and this twinned with the fact that films these days and it has been for a while now is how you open not how you kind of uh, perform over a long period of time it's about making that big first weekend splash um that you are essentially taking someone who has trained their whole life to uh, embody characters through the physical representation of acting um, um and reducing them to a marketing asset um, and they're, mm. they're just to the marketing team, the people who are whose job it is to make sure as many people go and see that movie 
on opening weekend as humanly possible, um, the person in it, you know, their performance to them is irrelevant. So therefore, it just becomes a face and a name, and and just how much cachet that has. And in that sense, it is just completely removing the art of acting from from the movie. Um, you are mm. reducing it down to a surname. You know, it can just be yeah. a, you know, Wahlberg <laughs> to uh, to use um, an unlikely movie star. That at the top of a poster above the title uh, is all of a sudden not about the actor's performance uh, or anything. It's just about will someone recognise those letters in that order and it be kind of like will it have the response in them? They'll be like, I'll go and see that movie, which is bad because you've got a lot of people who are, who are actors who are, who are now in the age of franchise movies being thrust into leading roles. And the failure of any of those films is not a reflection on them. It's a reflection Mm -hmm. on general audience tastes and responses to perhaps an oversaturated marketplace and not being interested in certain things and i think that what miss kazan is saying is that the two are now way too easily confused and that you are assuming that someone's a movie star just because they're they're like in a movie which is not the case yeah and and also you get the thing which we you know we were talking about with people talking about you know something like red sparrow underperforming because Jennifer Lawrence is the star of the movie. She's the face of the movie. She's there doing all the press for it. You know, she's, you know, on social media talking about it. And that's also a big part of being a movie star now is like, you have to do the, you have to, not only do you have to go and do all of the talk shows and everything to talk at your movies, you also have to be like tweeting and doing Facebook live and stuff like that. And some people are really great at that. Like someone like Reese Witherspoon is like great at selling her movies in a kind of a really fun uh, engaging way but like a lot of people I think it's just like oh, fuck I already made the movie mm-hmm. like, I, and all of the promotional stuff is such a grind anyway now I have to do a Snapchat story great mm-hmm. um, but you know all of that is then said okay if the movie and you see this a lot in like deadline articles about when movies are perform it's like you know oh they didn't do enough on social or things like that it's like well maybe people just don't want to watch a two hour something movie about a Russian spy set in the 80s <laughs> you know maybe it's not something that's really all that appealing at this point maybe the marketplace isn't set up for that to be a big hit maybe it never was you know that's not a genre of movie that's ever been kind of like a real huge blockbuster except you know for Bond or for um for Mission Impossible you know like something that's more action orientated and more you know geared towards fun as to you know as opposed to the actual minutiae of, you know, spy work, you know, spycraft. Um, and then also in terms of, I think, another way in which the myth of the movie star is bad is that it's something that can be a trap for actors. Because, like, you know, we were talking about the the, the, the way in which the studio would point someone towards certain kinds of roles. And at a certain point, you know, that's basically all someone did. Like, Cary Grant like past a certain point he's pretty much doing nothing but like uh fizzy thrillers and comedies and he was great at that like there's almost no one better than him at that kind of movie Mm -hmm. but like 
that there, I doubt that there were lots of different kinds of scripts being sent his way as a result. And I think in the modern era, I think you can see that in the case of like someone like a Robert Downey Jr. who after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang um, kind of rekindled his career and then obviously Iron Man, you know, kind of took him to a whole other stratosphere of success. You know, he's not really being offered anything that isn't Tony Stark-like. And the time that he tried something different than that with The Judge, which was very much a passion project of his own, where he tried to manufacture a Oscar for himself, essentially, it, it kind of didn't work. And so there's that sense that people will say, OK, well, we can only give you these kind of roles. And for an actor like him, who, for all of his kind of like personal travails, was someone who tried lots of things, uh, there is that sense that, you know, once the Marvel series is done, like maybe there won't actually be that many opportunities for him to push himself as an actor. Mm. And then, you know, for him, there's also that sense that, you know, he's so successful, why would he want to try anything else? But I think for that second tier of star who maybe aren't making huge amounts of money, it becomes a trap where you can't push yourself to do, you can't try lots of different things. And then once the, your kind of like cachet expires in Hollywood, then everyone will be like, well, the kinds of movies that you used to make are no longer popular and we've never seen you try anything else. So why should we hire you? Mm. I tell you, um, of a kind of an example of someone who is kind of escaping the trap, uh, of movie stardom is, uh, someone like Brad Pitt, mm. who is, yeah. as he's getting kind of older and perhaps less interested in, you know, running around, you know, waving a gun around is taking less roles and producing more films. Yes. And he is someone that has the cachet as a star to do something like he did with World War Z, which mm. was a big vehicle for him. And it was, you know, to call it a passion project would probably not fair, but his company had taken it on and it wasn't working. And he went to great pains himself to turn the ship around by having expensive reshoots. Did, did they replace the director or did they you know, bring in someone else and they completely remodeled the entire film? Mm. Um, and it was his star power that allowed that to happen. Yeah, and also he has remodeled himself as, you know, a producer, you know, giving him, uh, producing things like uh, 12 Years a Slave, which he got his Oscar for, mm. you know. And Selma uh, and, and things like that. Yeah, and, you know, in the case of 12 Years a Slave, giving himself a kind of a small role as the nice, the one nice person in the movie. But, you know, there is that sense that he uh, has leveraged his movie star qualities uh, to shift into an entirely different gear and and similar to George Clooney who I think was kind of a pioneer in that in that he took you know his his status as a, like a huge hugely famous successful TV star and then movie actor to say okay I'm going to start writing and directing and producing my own movies I'm going to start producing other people's movies and that had uh, strategy hasn't paid off great um <laughs> past uh, the first couple of movies he directed but it is certainly something that I think a lot of other movie stars are looking at. Reese Witherspoon, who I just mentioned, also like someone who has moved heavily into producing. Drew Barrymore as well, mm -hmm. uh, who really should direct another movie because she's only directed Whip It, and that was really good. That was super she's fun. Certain, should they, there is this kind of like this generation of of stars who are now you know 
who have, you know, the rock stars have always had their own kind of like shingle at a, at a studio or their own offices. But, you know, the kind of like the producing side of things was maybe not something that they really took that seriously. It was more just like, it's nice to have your name on the credits for a movie. Mm-hmm. But I think George Clooney and, and Tom Cruise through um, United Artists, you know, uh, and his companies, there is definitely that sense that they are trying to take more control and be more involved in making things happen either for themselves or for just kind of people they like uh, and and kind of building up that career that way instead of being, you know, the new triple threat is not acting, dancing and singing, it's uh, acting, producing, writing or acting, producing, directing. Mm, Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the new... um, Although, to be fair, Charlie Chaplin had all of those bases covered... Mm. Yes. And because he, he was, was also a, stuntman. Yeah, he was a sextuple threat. Well, I suppose... And Buster Keaton. Tom Cruise has never directed, but he has, he has done some stunts. He did direct one movie, one episode of that TV series. I, I think it was coming to something like Fallen Angels, which was like an anthology series in the mid-90s, which uh, if if people look it up, there was like it was like every episode was like vaguely noir-influenced. Uh, and if you look at the list of directors, it's people like Steven Soderbergh and Tom Hanks and things like that. He's got a really crazy selection of uh, directors. But as far as I'm aware, that's the only thing he's ever directed. How on earth have I never heard that? that it's even... only something that I. It's only something that I discovered like a couple of years ago because I was going through like a Soderbergh phase and I was like looking at stuff of his that I hadn't seen. Mm. And like he said, oh, I directed one episode of this program, and then like you look at the list of directors, it's like Tom Cruise. Mm. I never knew he did direct, but yeah, yeah he he is. But he is someone who uh, I think is is definitely maybe a, a little long in the tooth as far as the action star goes. Uh, or I guess it depends on how the new Mission Impossible does. But he certainly seems to be kind of setting up his position as being someone who can still get movies made, even if he's no longer the star of them. Mm, I really kind of wish he'd do something more. Maybe. Paul Thomas Anderson can uh, weed him out again to do something like uh, Magnolia, um, which he is, you know, astounding in. Um, mm. But, like, he just does those roles so infrequently. Um, yeah. And seems to be just keep on doing the thing. I don't know, I, I don't know kind of why he does it at this point. Like, you know, it, it can't be about the money. So, you know, surely as you get older, you just want to do more interesting things. Mm. Or hold the door open yeah. for someone else to do more interesting things, not just keep doing the same things. Yeah, I do wonder because I think Mark Harris wrote there was a there was like a, a symposium, I guess, on Grantland a few years ago where all of these different writers all wrote about Tom Cruise in different facets. Uh, the much missed Grantland that was a great site, but um, Mark Harris wrote an essay about like his late nineties run when he started working with you know when he did. Jerry Maguire, when he did Magnolia, when he did uh, Eyes Wide Shirt, uh, Vanilla Sky, when he did all of these movies that are all really pushing himself and his idea of his persona in like really interesting director, uh, directions, and he's working with all these kind of fascinating filmmakers as well. And I think one of the suggestions he had, uh, one of the conclusions he kind of reached in that piece was that the fact that he wasn't able to get an Oscar out of that or the fact that he wasn't able to kind of build this sustainable branch of his career of interesting kind of character actor roles 
at a certain point, you just kind of like snap back to the thing that felt safe because mm-hmm. the thing he was taking risks on weren't really paying off, uh, which I think you can also like, you could roll something like collateral in there, which mm-hmm. I think is probably his best performance. Like or yeah. one of his best. I think he's absolutely incredible in that. And I think the fact that he didn't get nominated for that, maybe mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of like the thing that made him think, I'm just going to make Mission Impossible movies until one of them kills me, <laughs> which seems to be uh, the path he's going with those stunts. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, Tom Cruise is a very interesting case. And in terms of thinking about the modern movie star, he is the first person I think of when thinking about the modern movie star in you know as a development of what the old fashioned movie star was mm. so so much so that when the mummy died on its ass i was like holy shit <laughs> like he's actually i can't remember the last film he had that failed that badly mm. like i genuinely genuinely can't like if you, is there, I, I don't know whether like even like something like night and day which seemed for all intents and purposes, not to be a success, probably made its money back and then some. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I can't remember the last time a film of his properly died on its ass. Yeah. And he's made and enough bad films. <laughs> yeah, and especially where the expectations were, oh, it's going to launch this whole new cinematic universe. And it was like, no, <laughs> that's not really yeah. happening anymore. This movie was such a colossal failure on that front that nothing is ever going to happen with that entire um, idea that we'd created a whole logo for and everything. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird one. Uh, so we end this episode, as we end all of our episodes, with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and that we think that you, our listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners? I'm going to recommend something and then tell you literally nothing about it because it will kind of ruin it if I do. I'm going to recommend uh, a limited uh, docu-series on Netflix called Wild Wild Country. And uh, I know that you've seen nearly all of it uh, by now. And, yeah, so it's kind of executive produced by the Duplass boys um, who, they get around. Um, They're fairly... um, dependable folks in in terms of content um, and it's a docu-series which uh, is about um, kind of like the pull and the, the tension between Portland, like kind of remote Portland residents who live, sorry uh, Oregonian residents um, who get a tad upset when a big kind of stretch of land is bought by a essentially a, a, a religious group uh, mm. I don't want to fall into the trap of calling them a cult. You can make your own minds up. And the ongoing uh, battles that ensue between them, some of those battles are literal um, and, you know, kind of some of them figurative. And it's amazing because, for, for the reason I love it when I see a documentary or, like, read a book or something that's, you know, a kind of like it's a non-fiction, and you think, how the fuck didn't I know that? That is so strange that it had to have been like like that. Why is that not common knowledge? Because yeah. the twists and turns this story takes are so unusual and so uh, unexpected and just 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 downright weird that it's an astonishing story and it's really well put together. Uh, and it's six parts, and they're about an hour each. Um, and yeah, it's 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 uh, an exceptional piece of television. Um, but what I would say is what I loved about it so much is 
it's it's so murky and grey. Like mm. from episode to episode, you've got people doing terrible things that are clearly wrong, and you're still not sure who the baddies are. Yes, yeah. There's uh, a real tension uh, between, uh, like, say, tension between the the various groups involved, but also like the ways in which the story unfolds. There's clear. There's that sense that like. Maybe everyone's wrong in this situation to some degree or other. Like, maybe everyone is being incredibly shady and maybe this situation is escalating because everyone is kind of acting in bad faith to one degree or another. Mm. Uh, But yes, I I second that. It's very, very good. And uh, it goes in some wild directions, as the name would suggest. Yeah, like one minute you're like, well, this is clearly an infringement on these people's constitutional rights. And, and, you know, I'm pretty sure there's something in the Constitution about, you know, freedom of assembly and religious Mm -hmm. freedom. And then, oh, shit, there's a bioterror attack. (laughs) Who's done that? What's happening? Why did you do that? That's absurd. Oh, my God, this is a tangled web of, like awfulness you've still got one episode to go yeah which i think the last 10 minutes of that episode you're like really fuck why did i not know this because <laughs> like that it talks about you know the state of things now and like mm. y- you must have walked past you know uh, the remnants of this story every time you walk in a bookshop but you've never noticed it and right. you, you'll, you'll, you'll see it when you get to the end. You'll be like, no, seriously, this is something I just do. And to the point where I was thinking, if this gets to the end of the sixth episode and this turns out to be a hoax, like a mockumentary, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> because I'm so in the dark about all of these details. Um, but, yeah, I'm, um, it's, it's, an, it's a hugely absorbing documentary and uh, it's shot in a really kind of uh, evocative way. Uh, using a lot of, uh, and the, the good thing is, everyone on both sides of the of the fight filmed everything. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. there's a lot of um, you know footage from inside both camps, um, and then also kind of like cool animation and some really evocative, moody landscape photography that's it's kind of uh, done like now. Uh, yeah, um, heartily recommended. Um, do it. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Great, yes. Uh, I am going to recommend a book, and I think anyone who has spoken to me in the last kind of like month will be unsurprised by the book because I basically talked about it to everyone, particularly when I was back in the UK. It's a book called Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman. It is a book about the New York music scene from the years 2001 till 2011. So it's about people like The Strokes, The Air Years, Interpol, uh, towards the end of it, people like. Vampire Weekend and TV by TV on the radio, Grizzly Bear, people like that. And what's great about it is that for, certainly for me, it's kind of activates two different levels of nostalgia. On the one, is making me nostalgic for New York in the early two thousands, which I only went to once, and it was on a family vacation, so it wasn't like I was going to the Plant Bar and doing lines with Harmar Superstar. But like, it certainly makes you think. God, oh, that sounds like such a like pre gentrification New York sounds like such a scary and and weird place but and then on the other level it's like reminding me of being like 15 and running to the school library to pick up the new issue of the NME to read about all of these bands that are exploding out of there so for anyone who like came of age as I did or or who certainly followed that music scene it's really cool to read all these stories about all these bands and how they formed how they found their sound you know the the excesses of touring you know there's lots of good stories of, of things going completely haywire, often involving Harmar Superstar. But mm, tell surprise. <laughs> yeah. 
but on uh, on a kind of a deeper level and what I think makes it so ambitious uh, a book um, is that Goodman doesn't just talk to the bands and the fans about what all this meant she's also talking to people who worked in the music industry like so you're talking to A&R men executives uh, journalists and bloggers and basically the thesis of the book is that not only was this a very exciting time musically for New York you know it kind of made New York cool for music again in a way that it hadn't been for a while it's also talking about it as essentially the last gasp of the music industry as it had previously existed if you're talking about the idea of big advances for bands and like the idea that they would try and force a rock band to be a huge success uh, in a way that like doesn't happen so much in the the internet age anymore and at the same time the rise of blogging as a force you know allowing people to find bands in a way that they maybe wouldn't under old structures and i think it's a, a really comprehensive kaleidoscopic snapshot of you know using new york as kind of a microcosm for the way in which the early part of the 20th century and the rise of the internet completely changed all media Mm -hmm. and changed how people experience art how art gets out there and i think it's it's really really great Mm. Uh, be interesting to uh get into that because i kind of missed that scene i mean i was at university then I was like 21 and and kind of just starting to not listen to Oasis mm-hmm. um, and you know explore other music because once I did listen to other music I realised that Oasis weren't very good um, <laughs> but that's what I'd been kind of listening to for like the last five or six years and I remember someone saying to me like the Strokes are going to be like a really good band or whatever and I just kind of went oh, okay. And then never listened to them until I think after the release of their second album. And I was mm. like, "Hey, this this uh, this first album of theirs is great." Uh, you know, like, are they touring? No, they're not. They're too big <laughs> for that now. It's just like, and like all my mates were seeing them in like dingy like clubs in in England on tour. Uh, and I'd kind of just completely missed the boat. And uh, this is this is typical me in terms of music. I always just arrive when the band's split up or like two of the members have died. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you know, I've completely missed the party. Um, I'm you know, I'll always get into the band, but just perhaps a little too late. Mm. Yeah, I think this is also it's just good, also for pointing you in the direction of some of the lesser known bands. I mean, it does focus on the big marquee names because oh, why wouldn't it? But it's fun having them. There's a there's a whole section of it about the band Jonathan Fire Eater, which was like a band. F- which ended up kind of imploding after like two albums, but members of it ended up going and forming the Walkman. Uh, right. And, okay. Uh, and it's just interesting. Like everyone's talking about them as like this band that was trying to be the Strokes like four years too early. And it's kind of a fun little anecdote, essentially about the capricious nature of the music industry and, and stardom, you know, to kind of bring back to the main topic that sometimes you have a sound that feels like, Oh, this is going to work and everyone is ready for this and then it just doesn't happen at all <laughs> and then someone else comes along and is like yeah sorry about that but we're going to be we're going to perform on the MTV Music Awards and you're going to have to wait a little bit before things happen for you mm-hmm. if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on iTunes Stitcher Blair FM all the usual places rate and review us and recommend us to your friends it's the best way for us to grow our audience you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter we are at SRS underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me